Welcome to the Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast, where we are all about going beyond programs, beyond best practices, and beyond curriculum to recover and learn from our Wesleyan roots and to explore the foundations for small groups that are organized to beat the devil and that produce disciples of Jesus Christ who in turn disciple others. My name is Scott Hughes, and I'm the Director of Adult Discipleship here at Discipleship Ministries, a small part of your apportionment dollars at work. Well, this week as I'm recording this podcast, more details have emerged about the three plans that will be submitted to the Special Call General Conference in February of 2019. And so I thought in light of of what's our Methodist context, our United Methodist context, uh, to give some resources to Sunday school classes and small groups about how to have conversation well, whether it's about a way forward or really any social issue or just any uh, difficult topic you may have. One of the side projects I've worked on is called Courageous Conversations. You can find more of those resources on our website if you go to umcdiscipleship.org. Find the Topics tab, and under that you'll see Courageous Conversations. And then from there, if you'll go to Tools for Leaders, you'll see uh, two documents in particular that I'll point you to today. One is How to Have a Courageous Conversation in a Small Group or Sunday School Class, and a companion document that's a facilitator's guide for those who would like to use that. So I think these are, hopefully these are resources that will help you to have conversation well, because I do believe the church has an opportunity to to, to witness to love in, in the spite of our disagreement. Jesus said that they will know, you'll be known by your love for one another. Um, and so I, I pray that that would be how we might go about this as churches and as small groups and Sunday school classes to have this conversation well. And so uh, I, I produced those documents in, uh, co-authored them with uh, Reverend Chris Barbary, who is who I interviewed for this, this interview. Uh, and after the interview, when we come back, uh, I'll share some reflections on that interview. So I hope you'll you'll stick around for that. Uh, Chris Barbary is an ordained deacon serving in North Georgia. He currently is appointed as associate chaplain at Floyd Medical Center in Rome, Georgia. Chris also operates Digital Deacon Ministries, through which he has published several Lectio Divina-style devotional journals, which can be found through Amazon. And Chris frequently speaks and teaches on spiritual formation throughout the North Georgia Conference. And so with that, let's roll into the interview. Well, Chris, I appreciate you joining me today. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about because I think it's really needed. It's needed for Sunday schools and small groups to to have conversation well about difficult issues, whether it's social issues or uh, perhaps they're arguing about the color of the carpet, you know, whatever. Um, but they they need good resources to help them to talk about this well. Uh, I certainly believe that the, the church can be a witness uh, to, to have conversation well amongst our disagreement. So let's, let's jump right into it and talk about the context in which what, what, what people need to think about in terms of the context in which they're, they're going to have these conversations. Um, so where would you start if you were advising churches or small groups and Sunday school classes, where would you start to help them begin to think through how to do this well? Well, I think you uh, start us off on a really, really important point is that you really do have to think it through yeah. in advance. Uh, if you show up and just turn on the lights and walk into a room, <laughs> uh, you, you're really not going to probably have a very constructive conversation. True. So I think, you know, you, you need to, to think about the context 
that you're going to be in. Um, and that context is, is there's a lot of things we need to look at. Uh, we need to think about um, who's likely to be in the room. Yeah. Uh, think about it demographically. Are we going to have some millennials and some retirees in the room? Uh, are we going to have some folks who are quote unquote conservative and some folks who are quote unquote liberal in the room? Mm-hmm. Uh, who's going to be present, um, which will help you anticipate um, some of the perspectives that might be represented, where some of the conflict um, that might emerge um, in conversation. Yeah. Um, but I also think you have to, you know, think about simple things like how is your space organized? Yeah, um, true. You know, um, I, I've never really been a big fan of the, the, the podium up front mm-hmm. and everybody sitting in rows um, because it, it sets up sort of a power dynamic and it sets up an expectation that, um, you know, the person up front is going to share all the information. Yeah. Um, and I much prefer something where uh, people are sitting around um, looking at each other, you know, yeah, and so, whether true. it's in small groups at tables or one large circle. Um, but I think eye contact uh, is really important for a variety of reasons, um, one of which I think we'll get into in, in a few minutes. Um, and I think sometimes it's helpful uh, if you've got a large group. Uh, you're always going to have people who are um, more on the introverted side mm-hmm. of thing. And, and if it's a group of 25 people, they may not be comfortable sharing their thoughts. That's uh, right. But if you put them in a small table with two or three people, they're much more likely to participate and engage. And I think ultimately uh, you'll have a richer conversation, a richer experience for everyone if you do that. Yeah. Do you, do you think you have any, well, let me say two things. First, in terms of planning, one of the things I would say is don't just plan this on your own. Get, get some other people from the group to help you think this through and the dynamics you need to think through who will bring some different, a different perspective. I think that's helpful to have some others and not just do that on your own. Do you have any preference in terms of should the room already be set up in circles or would you have participants arrange themselves in circles or do you, do you see any advantage to one versus the other? Um, I think it could be symbolic in having mm-hmm. the group yeah. uh, set the tables themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Give them but, some ownership. Exactly. Um, but at the same time, you know, sometimes just uh, particularly if it's a Sunday school class where, you know, you've got a, a very fixed amount of time um, to get something, you know, to have the conversation. Um, I would want to spend as much time as possible in the actual conversation versus yeah. room. So I think it's just one of those considerations you have to balance. Yeah, um, I agree. I think there's also benefit of, of people seeing the expectations when they walk in, right? right? This is what's happening today. And that's one of the things you probably have to really know your, your group. Some groups that'll work fine with some groups will walk in and may walk around, walk right back out. At least some of the groups I've been a part of. So yeah, you just have to know your group there. Um, yeah, anything else with context in terms of knowing your group? I think we've, we've ta- touched a lot about that. And, and I, w- I will pick up uh, again on the, the size. I, I always try and find, especially if I know there's some anxiety in the conversation, find some time to put people in micro groups of two or three and, and just turn to your neighbor and talk about this. Just Because like you said, there are some introverts who that's the only time they're going to talk. And what almost always happens is the extroverts say, I don't want to do that. You know, they're verbally protesting and you have to sort of push past them. Uh, The silent 
minority or majority or whatever are going, yes, thank you. Um, I think too, if, you know, if you know that the subject is going to be perhaps controversial and there may be some conflict, um, it's really important to um, have some of those, you know, I I don't like using the cliche icebreaker, Mm -hmm. um, but just having some non-threatening conversation uh, to get to know each other because we can't assume everybody knows each other well in the room, um, depending, again, knowing your context, do the people know each other well, or do some people know each other, or is everybody a stranger Mm. uh, in some way? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I love questions like, uh, tell me why you're a part of this church. What, what's Mm. been, you know, know, your most meaningful experience uh, being at this church? Uh, Because one of the, one of the goals, I think, for any conversation um, is we want to try to create an environment where everyone participating um, sees everyone else as a person, um, mm-hmm. not as an adversary or a potential mm-hmm. adversary. Yep. Um, you know, this church was so kind to me when my mama died and they just loved on me. And I just, you know, it just touched my heart. And ever since that moment, this has been my church. Well, that's, that's a very human thing. And, yeah. and so even if I had a different, perspective from that person, it really helps me see them as a person. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think that's, that's exactly right. And you can use a whole host of questions. What was your favorite vacation? What's your favorite food, et cetera. I think those are really good to build rapport. And like you said, help people see one another as, as human. And that, that sounds trite, but I think there's something we really need to hear that, hear people's stories to, to get there. Uh, let's, let's move on to talking about the need for covenants and or, and or guidelines in a conversation. Um, I'll say a few things. I'll let you add to it. Okay. I, mean, I, I think covenants really help provide some boundaries, some, some container to the conversation. Here's how we're going to have this conversation. It, it sets the expectations. And, and some of these, I, I know as adults, adults are kind of like, yeah, I know this. Um, but ju- for that, to make sure the environment is, um, and we'll talk about this, a brave space or a safe space, we need to reinforce those to say that this is how we're going to do this. Um, so what would you add to that, Chris, in terms of, of guidelines or covenants for, for a group? I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Scott. I think, um, you know, some of the, the best conversations I've been in in church have been in situations where you know, we have had that covenant. We have had that that guideline. And, you know, there are lots of um, templates that you can find mm-hmm. out there. Um, you know, I would just say, you know, pick one that works for you. Yeah. But I think, you know, in my mind, uh, a good covenant really boils down to, to three things that it emphasizes. And, and one is respect for each participant. Yep. Um, the second is, is everyone has a commitment to listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then third, uh, a willingness to learn. Um, yeah. So I'll sort of touch on those a little bit. You know, we, we've talked about this a little bit before, um, but we have to remind ourselves that, you know, we're, we're not coming to establish winners and losers. Mm. Um, it's not a zero sum game. Yeah. Exactly. We're, we're coming for a mutual purpose to try to grow together. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that is to see every person that's in that room uh, as a person, um, as a child of God, beautifully and wonderfully made to remind ourselves that I may 
vehemently disagree with that person sitting across the table from me. Um, but Jesus died for that person, mm, just right. like they died for me. Um, and so I think, you know, anything that we can do to reinforce that. Um, and I think whatever the covenant framework is, um, I, I think it needs to be visually present uh, in the room. Yeah, agreed. Um, because there, there are lots of little, uh, like there's one covenant I remember that says, um, you know, I will only claim my voice. I will not claim someone else's mm-hmm. voice. Yep. Um, and so I can't use phrases like, well, people have been saying, my least favorite phrase in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I can't worry about people. I can yeah. only talk for Chris. That's right. And I can't or say they, like, the mysterious they, you know, yeah, you, yeah, that ambiguous they, um, well, yeah. you're saying, um, yeah. you know, no, I can't claim your voice. Only you right. can claim your voice. Now there might be a way, you know, you could say, well, what I think I hear you saying is, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. is that a fair, am I hearing you correctly? Like that's completely different. Yeah, um, but having having that visually present where it says I will only speak for myself or something yeah. like that, um, it's just to remind people um, because especially, you know, when we start to get into an argument or things get heated, it, it's really helpful for everyone to see it and and everyone can share responsibility. It doesn't have to just fall on the facilitator to say, uh, you know, wait a minute, Chris. I think you're trying to claim Scott's voice and mm-hmm. we need to let Scott speak for Scott. Yeah. Um, so things like that. And I think that also goes to listening. Well, I know in some of the evaluations that I received in my work with Alabama, West Florida, um, one of the things, uh, comments I get a lot is why do we need this? I, I listen. Well, I listen fine. I don't need to be told that I, I'm a good listener. And what comes to mind is the stat I read where it's something like 70 or 80% of drivers polled say they're better than average <laughs> as a driver. It's like, well, how is that possible? Right. Okay, you know, um, but I think the same thing is true with learning that I've only met a handful of people in my life who I can say that was, a, that's someone who's really good at, at listening. Most people are pretty bad at listening. And part of that's just the way our mind works. We, we hear quicker than, than someone else speaks or however that works. And so that when someone else is speaking, we're jumping to what am I going to say in response? And when we really take time to listen, it's, it's, it's hard work because we're, we often project on what people we think they're saying right. as opposed to what they're actually saying. Uh, so listening is, is hard work and, and really takes some time. Um, anyway, we could say more about listening, uh, but I'll, I'll move us along. Um, and the next thing we really want to talk about is this willingness to learn. And that, I, I call it the posture of curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. How do we lean in and really listen and, and, and work at how can I gain some perspective about what others believe, about my own assumptions? Um, I, that, that's harder work than I think we think it is. Um, I, you are absolutely right. Uh, one of the things that I've become much more aware of uh, as I've grown and matured over the years is how, how many embedded beliefs mm. uh, I have. Um, you know, they're, we all have them. We have these, say, say more about that. What do you mean yeah. by embedded beliefs? We all have these uh, embedded beliefs and within the church and embedded theology where, you know, we've been taught something or told something 
um, or influenced by someone that we consider um, a, a trusted source. Like a parent or um, parent, a friend or whatever. Coach, um, you know, it, it could be a, a pastor from our childhood. Mm. Um, but as we grow older, um, we have to be willing to um, deliberately explore that belief or that, that, that theology and um, develop a deliberate theology, a deliberate understanding where um, we reach our own conclusions. Okay. And we don't just ex- take it um, as fact. So, um, you know, one of the funny examples I, I, I use for this is uh, the movie Waterboy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, where, uh, you know, the uh, Adam Sandler character, uh, he's been isolated his whole life. And uh, pretty much... Pretty much everything he knows has he's been taught by his mama, and he goes to college. And uh, the professor in the one class asks a question, you know, why are alligators abnormally aggressive? And he raises his hand and he says, "Mama says alligators are ornery because they got all those teeth and no toothbrush." Um, Your Cajun accent's better than mine. Go ahead. <laughs> and um, it's it's humorous, and there's several other examples. Um, within that, but it's a really great example of how he has an an embedded, um, a lot of embedded beliefs Mm -hmm. that were taught to him by his mama. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's never until this point in his life consciously explored the validity Mm -hmm. um, of what became his embedded beliefs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a humorous example, uh, but we're all guilty of that. Yes, Uh, we are. So, yeah, yeah. um, uh, you know, within the church, an example I like to use is the church's uh, stance on suicide. Um, mm. You know, this is not not quite as emotional topic as some of the other controversial things that uh, we discuss now. But um, 75 years ago, it was very controversial. Mm. And, you know, what happened with the church is we collectively, um, all denominations, had this embedded theology mm-hmm that came from Augustine in the fourth century. Hmm. Um, And it became part of our tradition to use our good Wesleyan quadrilateral language. Um, And no one really questioned it or explored it um, for about 1500 years. Um, And and then some folks started to ask themselves some questions about, well, gosh, you know, what does scripture really say about this? And we discovered passages, or I should say rediscovered passages. Rediscovery, yeah, sure. You know, where Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, you know, Paul saying nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Um, they, if you read scripture carefully, you find that there actually are several suicides in the Bible, and they're not condemned in any way. Um, so, uh, you look at uh, the, the lens of reason, and, and we know now because of a lot of our, our deeper medical understanding that a lot of suicides are uh, the result of mental illness. Uh, it's not a conscious choice that someone is making, right. and that really shifts our understanding of suicide from being a conscious choice sin um, to, to an illness, and, you know, we don't condemn, condemn people when they get cancer. Um, right. So why should we condemn them if they're mentally ill? Yeah. Um, and then through the experience side of our, our quadrilateral, 
you know, Wesley said some pretty harsh things uh, about um, suicide. And, and in particular, he said, you know, the family that was left behind after a suicide, we should just take all their stuff and throw them out on the street. Wow. Um, wow. I, hadn't, I hadn't heard that. That's interesting. That's, it's pretty harsh. Um, that's very. But if we ask ourselves, well, gosh, yeah. what would Jesus do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, would, would Jesus take this mother and her children who just lost their husband and their provider and throw them out on the street, or would he react with compassion? Hmm. So as we looked at, you know, it critically explored that embedded theology on suicide, um, using our good Wesleyan quadrilateral, we found a lot of evidence in those other three quadrants to override um, that embedded theology that had come to us through tradition. And uh, hmm. so I think it's a, it's a great example of how the church collectively listened um, and how Mm. it was willing to learn Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately the church landed on a fresh deliberate belief because now almost every denomination um, views suicide through the lens of mental illness and we're much more compassionate and much more um, in my opinion Christ-like so I think that's a great example of, of the church collectively doing uh, good work on what was a controversial uh, topic at the time. Mm, interesting, yeah. Uh, two quick thoughts here. That, that's really good. That's helpful. Uh, one is, I, as it relates to this understanding of suicide, I know even in my lifetime, things that I've heard from the church have, have shifted. Um, so, yeah, I agree. The other point that you make that I want to emphasize is learning, right? That really this is what this is about, is learning from one another. That's what these conversations, that's what, where they should be aimed is from learning for one another. And, and learning, uh, learning doesn't just happen, right? It has to happen within a, an appropriate space. So let's talk then about how do we create, I, I know some people like to use the, the phrase safe space. I, I've kind of shifted my language to use uh, brave space or even a courageous space um, because sometimes people need that, that courage, that bravery to say the thing they need to say that they're holding back on their reserve. They, they don't, they're not quite sure it is safe enough to say these things. So we need to create what I would call a brave space. Um, because here's what I've learned is that when we come up against an opinion that's different from our own, it's, it's not as though we look at that objectively and think, hmm, that's different. Let me examine this from all sides. Let me think about this through the quadrilateral or however else. Uh, the, what's happening in us neurologically, it's, it's the same dynamic as if we had encountered a bear at night in the woods. Blood rushes from our brain to our hands and our fists. We're ready to, to flee and to fight, uh, which means we're not then in that posture of curiosity. Right. And so that's why it's so important to, to create uh, the right context, as you've said, and to create a, a brave space. Uh, what do you want to add to that? No, I, I just I agree with everything you said. I think our our mentality and, and as you point out, it's neurological. I mean, some of mm-hmm. it we just can't help mm-hmm. uh, is we, we lapse very quickly into that fight or flight syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to be a conscious choice. And that's where, you know, you go back to what we were discussing a little while ago of, of creating that context and setting those ground mm-hmm. rules up front of, look, no, no one in this room has the absolute uh, number one concrete, this is how it is answer. Um, we're here to collectively explore this, to look at it from different perspectives 
to, to pull it apart, to, um, to listen, um, to hear different perspectives and um, try to um, collectively, at least at the very least, reach a respective understanding of what someone else may believe on the topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, most of, most of the controversial topics, uh, conversations that I've, I've been involved in, um, it's really easy to, to, and sometimes you'll see people do this to kind of belittle the other side. And, yeah. you know, people want to use the, the Bible as a club. Hmm. Um, and it can be really shocking to find that, wait a minute, that person on the other side, um, they actually are, are they're, they're looking at the Bible too. You know, mm-hmm. they have a completely different understanding, um, but it's not like they're ignoring the Bible. And, and so being willing to accept that, that they may be coming at it from a different perspective from me, mm-hmm. um, but they have the same integrity with their position that I have with my position. And I need yeah. to respect that. Yeah. And I, I'll say, Again, two things on that. I mean, one, I, I would say if, if you're doing this on a social issue, you know, draw from um, our, our Methodist doctrine or social principles to give some foundation and, let, and then let that exploring happen. Uh, two, you mentioned using the Bible as a weapon. I think the other sort of religious weapon I've seen in these conversations is, well, God told me. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it's like the ultimate trump card here, right? I've just right. laid that down. Well, God told me, so there's the answer, right? Um, and and so yeah, creating those environments where we can we can have a conversation about uh, whether it's a particular passage or passages, and say, how are you hearing this? How are you hearing this? And how has the tradition heard this? And taking all those things into consideration is is long and hard work. I mean, I think that's the other thing in terms of expectations. Mm-hmm. We're not going to solve this today. All right. Well, let's let's move on then to talk about um, the structure. How to engage this this well, right? I mean, I, I think uh, one of the things I'll let you talk about is is emotions and the role of emotions, and uh, I'll kind of lead into that and say, um, you know, these these conversations can't we can't look at them simply through the lens of an intellectual discussion, because people aren't just brains, right? They're balls of emotions as well. Um, so, what are some things we can do to make sure and engage emotions? Well, um, I, I think you really hit on a, an incredibly important uh, part um, of this whole process is paying attention to our emotions and the emotions in the room. Um, that's something as a pastor that I've worked hard to improve my awareness and listening skills is, you know, a lot of times there's a, a statement behind the statement or a question mm-hmm. behind the question um, and trying to pay attention to those uh, emotions. Um, one of the exercises that I like to do is um, to use UNO cards. Oh, interesting. And, uh, you know, you can have them just in a pile in the, in the center of the table, and you just tell people, um, okay, red means anger, and yellow means uh, afraid or fearful. Hmm. Uh, green cards are hopeful. Uh, blue cards are happy or joyful or expectant in some way. And just as the conversation is developing, um, you invite people to um, just grab a card if they're, as they become aware of the emotion. Um, and if they can, if there's time, you know, make a quick note, you know, I, I got angry when this was said, or mm-hmm. I got, you know, I, I felt excited when this was said. 
Um, and then at the, you know, toward the end of the conversation to look and say, gosh, you know, how were my emotions? What was the, the dominant emotion? Hmm. Um, what surprises me about this? What have I learned about myself in this conversation? And, and I think an important question to ask is where are these emotions coming from? Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's really helpful of recognizing that's part of the conversation is, is our emotions. And, you know, that's part of the covenant is to sort of help restrain and keep people, you know, from too much emotional reactivity. The other thing that I've used is a little plastic game timer, a little Mm -hmm. like hourglass and have those as a talking stick. So only the person with that can talk. And it, it works nice because once the sand runs out, you know, your time is done and you've, you've got to pass that along. Uh, again, in evaluations, I've seen those who think that's the greatest invention in the world and those who absolutely hate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and they hate it because it restricts. I mean, I, I was doing this with some young adults at a um, annual conference and I asked them how about their experience and they, they were honest enough to say, I found this frustrating <laughs> and pointed to that and say, you know, it, I, I wanted to say things that I couldn't. And then I did the same thing with adults and they, of course, were not as honest. <laughs> and when right. I pointed out what the youth said, they're like, uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So be okay with that. Like this, this is uncomfortable. And, and the last thing I'll say here to sort of wrap us up is I, I think all these, when you put all this together, can really help us be better learners, right? That what we do in these conversations are translatable skills for discipleship. If I learn how to restrain my emotions and listen well, uh, lean in uh, on conversations, that then helps me be a better disciple when I'm listening to my spouse or at work or so forth. So I think these are very translatable skills. Um, uh, so uh, say, yeah, so say, say more there, uh, Chris, you, you sent me a note there. Uh, say say one, one last word for you. I agree. I mean, you know, I think this is part of what we're called to as Christians is this is the process of sanctification mm, is yeah, of, of growing and learning and realizing that we don't have it all figured out. And every day we make that intentional conscious choice to try to grow closer to God and to be more Christ-like. Mm. And, and that's hard and it's messy. Um, but it's part of our calling as Christians and being disciples. Yeah. Loving God, loving neighbor. That's it. I'll give you the last word. That was great. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris. I always enjoy uh, talking with Chris and, and learning from him. He has some, some real gifts when it comes to, to group dynamics. One of the things we emphasized in our, in our interview uh, was listening. And I, and I do want to say that, you know, listening is, is great, but listening by itself isn't the purpose. Uh, listening is towards a larger goal. And the goal of Creative Conversations, the goal I would hope you would have in, in these types of conversations is for learning, right? L- learning to be better disciples, learning not in the sense of gaining perspective, learning in the sense of uncovering our assumptions, or as Chris said, our, um, our embedded theologies. Um, and so I have a story to, to, to relate that, to hopefully share what I mean by that and why it's so important to, to frame these conversations in, in learning. This comes from Whistling Vivaldi, Claude Steele's book, where he tells of a research project he did where he brought in students. Uh, they were white students, and they would be assigned um, conversation partners, two conversation partners. And so they'd be given a folder, and to open the folder, there would be uh, 
pictures of, of the two conversation partners. And either they were given a folder with a picture of two white students or a picture of two black students. And then they were assigned one of two topics, either love and dating or love and relationships was one topic and race and racial profiling was the second topic. So they were given their uh, a picture of the, the conversation partners and their topic, and then they were walked down the hallway and led into a small room. And in this room were three chairs stacked in a corner. And the researcher would say to the participant, they would say, uh, the room isn't set up. Uh, put the chairs how you would like them, and once you have the chairs how you want them for your conversation, sit down, and we'll bring in your conversation partners. And so the students would do that. They'd set up the conversation, or the chairs, rather, for the conversation, and then the researcher would walk back in the room and say, thank you for your time. This study has ended. And so what they were doing was measuring the distance of the chairs. And so uh, according to the variables. So what they found, and I don't think this is shocking, is that when there were white students and black students and the conversation was race and uh, racial profiling, the chairs were further apart than, the, than in the other scenarios. So they redid this project, and with one slight difference, as they brought the student into the room and before they showed them the chairs, the researcher would say, we want you to use this as an opportunity for learning. And they remeasured the chairs, and sure enough, in all scenarios, the chairs got closer. This shows why it's so important to frame these as opportunities for learning so that we might take on that posture that I mentioned in, in the interview, and that is a posture of curiosity so that we can listen well, but so that we can listen well, that we might learn well and learn from one another. So I hope this has been helpful for you. If, if it has, I hope you'll, you'll reach out to me and let me know. As I said, I hope to do some more of these interviews with others who also have some helpful practical advice for us. Uh, so reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter, Rev Scott's Tweets, also at UMC Adult Form for adult formation. And you can find our, my email on our website, umcdiscipleship.org. I want to thank those who helped make this possible. I want to thank Blake, our technical director, Mac Carlisle, our web producer, and Steve Horswell-Johnson, our executive producer. Look forward to hearing from you, and until next time, peace. Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.